Let's open the Scriptures this afternoon to the Gospel of Luke in the first place, and then the Gospel of Matthew. We turn first to Luke chapter 16. We'll read Luke 16, the verses 19 through 31. And indeed, we're focusing on what we can learn from Scripture about the resurrection of the dead. So we're going to focus on the Lord's parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Chapter 16, verse 19, this is the Lord Jesus speaking. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone comes, goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. From here we go to God, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, starting at verse 16. And the Lord Jesus will say some things about the coming life. And behold, a man came up to him, that's the Lord Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for My name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The text for this afternoon's sermon comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, the verses 23 through 33. We'll also be figuring in those other passages as well. Verse 23 of chapter 22 the same day Sadducees came to Him, that's Christ, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked Him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching." That's as far as our text goes. Saints of God in our Lord Jesus Christ, if you saw me in heaven, would you know my name? If you saw me in heaven, would it be the same? The same between us as it is today. These questions come from a pop song, but they could easily have arisen from any one of us. Will we know one another when we get to heaven? Will the relationships we have here in this life carry on into the next? These questions, they, they press in on us all the more when we know people who are right now in heaven. 
a number of us this past year and just in these past few months have experienced death among family or close friends. As congregation, we buried one of our own, our brother Steph Woodenberg. And as this year of our Lord draws to a close, it's, it's natural to think back upon their lives. It's also natural to think ahead to that great goal of history to which every day is leading, also every week and every year takes us closer, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because on that day, He will raise all the dead, and He will enter into judgment with every human. Those who have not loved the King, King Jesus, will go off into eternal punishment, but those who have loved the Lord those who belong to Him will go on to live with their God on the new earth to enjoy this resurrected life. We know, we believe, we confess, we trust that that new life is most certainly coming. But what kind of life will it be? Will we start from scratch? without any awareness of the past, or will I know you and you know me in heaven? Those questions we hope to answer, at least in part this afternoon, as I bring you this word of the Lord. Christ promises a resurrection to a renovated life, a renovated life. That includes memory without baggage and love without limits. In our text, the Lord Jesus is approached by a group called the Sadducees, and He's asked a direct question about the quality of that coming great resurrection and the life that will result from it. Now, we don't read an awful lot about the Sadducees in the Gospels, we hear more about the Pharisees, but the Sadducees are kind of a rival group to the Pharisees. Sadducees were also among the leadership of the Jews, like the Pharisees. They actually were quite powerful in the uh, priestly class, generally speaking, very wealthy individuals and politically well-connected, more so than the Pharisees even. Connected to the Romans, connected to King Herod. And these Sadducees, they also had very peculiar theological views, which made them bitter opponents to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they looked upon the whole Old Testament Scriptures that we still have today. They took them all seriously, and I think you know they also added to those laws many uh, traditions of their own. But the Pharisees, or the Sadducees did the opposite. They actually stripped down what they considered to be the Word of God, to only the five books of Moses. So they dispensed with the prophets, they dispensed with Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the book of Psalms even, and they just st stuck to the first five books of the Bible. And more than that, these Sadducees, they were known to openly deny the existence of angels and spirits, and they pointedly rejected any coming back to life. Once you were dead, said the Sadducees, you were dead. They actually would have fit right at home in the atheistic 21st century. 
But like the Pharisees, the Sadducees hated Jesus. They saw Him as a rival. And so, like the Pharisees, they tried to trap Him. They come to Him with a, with a question. Their story and their question were designed to make Jesus say something either against Moses, which every Jew respected, or to make Jesus deny that there is a resurrection, something that Jesus had earlier openly taught. Either result would make Jesus discredited in the eyes of the people, make him look bad, and kind of turn the crowds away from Jesus. That was their, their hope, these Sadducees. So they come with a, with a story, and the logic of their story, it's very simple, and it makes sense in their minds. Moses had commanded that the brother of a man who died without leaving children, that that brother had to marry the widow and raise up offspring for the deceased man. We've even seen some examples of this in recent preaching with uh, Judah and Tamar and Ruth and Boaz. So that was indeed a law of the Lord. And then the Sadducees, they paint a, an extended scenario where this happened not just to one brother or two brothers or three, but to seven. Seven brothers lived. Seven brothers had to marry this one woman. Then the seven brothers died, and, all at, the, and at the end, the woman died. And then they come to Jesus with this question in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? In their minds, this is a slam dunk. This proves that there could be no such thing as a resurrection because then there would be this unresolved problem of whose wife this woman could be. She certainly couldn't be wife to all seven men in the resurrection, could she? Don't you see, Jesus? This is the implication of their question. Don't you see, Jesus, how all this talk of a resurrection is foolish because Moses could never have allowed multiple marriage partners in this life if there was to be a next life. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work. Well, it seems like a pretty decent argument, but I wonder if you can detect their error. The error of the Sadducees is in their underlying assumption. They assume that the next life is going to be identical to this life. Same setup, same rules, same relationships, and they can't see how it's going to work. And now notice how the Lord Jesus responds. He gives them, he, he gives them a clear rebuke in our text. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. That's verse 29. You don't know your Bible, Sadducees. That would have stopped them in their tracks because even though they discounted the rest of the Old Testament, they certainly knew the five books of Moses. He says, you don't even, you don't even know the Bible you have. And you don't know the power of God. And that shows us what our starting point needs to be in coming to grips with the resurrection. We must never go on our assumptions, never on our feelings, but always on God's revelation. We certainly may, may not say more than God's Word says, but we should not say less than what God reveals. So questions, on the one hand, we can't answer all of our questions, but we should not 
dismiss out of hand our questions until we've examined Scriptures and then can conclude we don't know the answer to that question. It hasn't been revealed. And then alongside of that, we have to also keep in mind, brothers, the, the unlimited creative power of God to arrange things in that next life that we right now can't even fathom or imagine are possible or even desirable. The Lord can do way beyond what we could even think is possible. Assumptions easily lead us down the wrong track. What assumptions might you or I have? Maybe it's different from the Sadducees. The Sadducees assumed that the next life would be basically the same as this life, but I think maybe we have the opposite assumption, that we assume that the next life is totally different from this life. We tend to assume that the Bible says so little on the subject, all we are left with is speculation and we shouldn't speculate. We tend to assume it's beyond our comprehension, so we'll just have to wait to find out. We tend to assume or feel that we won't remember any of this present life with all of its sin and brokenness and shame and sorrow. We tend to assume that heaven will be a fresh start. New bodies, new personalities, a fresh start on a new page with no memory of the past, especially no memory of sin. But is that what the Bible teaches? Our Lord's message in verse 31 shows us something quite different. He says there, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Notice how he quotes from the books of Moses. A passage then that the Sadducees would have to take seriously. They honored that as the Word of God. He, he quotes from, quote, their Bible. Moses himself provides the proof positive that there is life after death, that those with whom God covenants in this life, those who fear His name, those for whom God has sworn to be their God, those people cannot ever be separated from God even by death. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living, says Christ. Even though their bodies went into the ground, clearly their souls went to be in the presence of their God. That's the implication. And Moses taught that. And now notice that these people who are still alive, mentioned by Christ, and fellowshipping with God, they are not nameless souls. Nor are these people who at death received a new identity, disconnected with what happened in the past. No, these are, are, are not people without a memory or a personality. These are the people that have been known to God in this life who have passed on to the next life and are still known to God. And they know their God. Jesus identifies them. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Brothers and sisters, you cannot be Abraham in heaven unless you were Abraham on earth. 
Can't be Isaac in heaven unless you were Isaac down below. Same with Jacob. These men who once lived here in the flesh, just like you and I are, they are presently alive to God as living souls in heaven, and they expect to be fully resurrected in the flesh on the day the Lord Jesus returns to this earth. They know what is coming because they remember what they have been promised. They have their memories. Memory is so very vital to who we are, right? Take away a person's memory, and you take away that person's identity. We see it so sadly with Alzheimer's and dementia, that such a person who's at an advanced stage, they're no longer themselves, we say. We've lost them some time ago, even though they might still be alive. But if a person knows his name, if a person remembers the past, that person is that person and has the personality he or she's always had. Jesus taught the same continuity in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, which we read in Luke 16. Now, you might say, well, hey, wait a second. Now, that was just a parable. And some say, well, you can't make any conclusions based on a parable, which is just a story to make a point. But tell me, brothers and sisters, if the parable in Luke 16 does not correspond to reality, what point is it making? Maybe you want to turn with me to Luke 16. Let's look at it together. Page 1113. If this story that Jesus tells is completely imaginary with no parallel in reality, then the rich person, the rich careless person then, has nothing to worry about. This parable only works as a warning and as an encouragement if after death the one goes to be with Abraham and the other goes into the flames of hell. If you take that away and you say, that's actually not going to happen, we don't really know what's going to happen, this whole story falls flat and there's no warning and there's no encouragement. But like all of Jesus' parables, they are true to life. You can't find one of Jesus' parables that's imaginary, that paints a scenario that doesn't happen. Now, this parable presents the picture of the in-between life the life after we die, but before the life of the resurrection. That's, that in-between life is a temporary situation. It's an incomplete situation. On the one hand, suffering and sin are left behind. We see that with Lazarus. But on the other hand, the souls of believers are waiting for their bodies to be raised up, waiting for Christ to come in the fullness of His kingdom, waiting for the whole church to be gathered in, waiting also for the destruction of Satan's kingdom. You can think of Revelation with the souls under the altar waiting and asking, how long, O Lord? They're waiting. So these souls are in the glory of heaven, but there is a fuller glory to come on the day that Christ returns to renew the old earth. But in this parable, let us see that Lazarus, when he dies, he remains Lazarus. And he's brought by the angels to the side of Abraham, an identifiable person whom Lazarus has read about in the Scriptures. 
The rich man also retains his identity in hell, and he still knows Lazarus across the chasm. And he can identify Abraham as Father Abraham, the patriarch. So there's definitely continuity in their personalities and their, in their relationships as they passed from earth to heaven or even earth into hell. Well, some might ask, well, how does this work? Like, how can a soul have a personality and a presence, and how can a soul be recognizable? Don't you need a body to be recognizable? We find that hard to imagine, and so we might dismiss that. But brothers and sisters, again, what does the Bible say? We can think of, a, think of the angels, whom the Bible calls ministering spirits. So angels do not have bodies as we have them. They are spirits. And yet, the angels can be seen when they want to be seen. They have identities. Think of angel Gabriel or Michael. Angels can speak. Angels can serve. Angels can sing. Angels can have wings. Angels can interact with other beings. We have a limited understanding of how spirits and souls can interact, but that limited understanding must not dictate our thoughts about heaven, but God's Word. And God's power must guide us, and God's Word tells us that our spirits are alive even after we die here on earth. They're alive either in heaven or in hell. We do not get obliterated. Notice, too, that all the persons in Jesus' parable have memories of what happened on the earth. Lazarus is being comforted, verse 25. And Abraham says to the rich man, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Well, you can, on the one hand, only be comforted if you remember the suffering that you had. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to be comforted. And the rich man knows what he received on the earth. He knows also the evil he did on the earth. He knows why he's in hell. And the rich man also remembers he's got five brothers on the earth, and he pleads for Abraham to warn them. And in Abraham's response, we see that Abraham knows how life is on the earth. He says, your brothers, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What else can we conclude from this, brothers and sisters, but that we will have with us our memories in heaven, and then later on the new earth, we will know ourselves, and we will know each other. Doesn't the Lord Jesus teach this also more directly in Matthew 19, which we read? Toward the end, verse 28, speaking to His disciples, He says, "'Truly I say to you, in the new world,' so that's the, the new earth, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You who have followed Me. Not just any twelve random men, but the twelve apostles, Peter, James, John, and all the rest, who had faithfully followed Jesus and suffered with Him and after Him. Those twelve were meant to look forward to that reward of grace. They were meant to understand that the things they endured in this life 
and the work they would do in service of their king in this life, all of that would follow after them. Their deeds would follow after them, as Revelation says, into the next life, and those deeds would have a bearing on how the next life goes. For the 12 apostles, they get 12 thrones, ruling the people of God, the new Israel. And then Jesus says in verse 29 of that same chapter, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Brothers and sisters, those words only hold meaning if the Christians who suffer such things in this life remember that suffering when they arrive at the next life and receive a reward. Just like Lazarus in the parable, the future comfort in heaven and later on the new earth, it's connected with how they served and how they suffered for the Lord in this life. And for that to happen, there, that requires a continuity in memory from this life to the next. So it seems very clear, brothers and sisters, that when you and I open our eyes in heaven after death, you will still be you, and I will still be me. Only we will now be, we will then be, souls totally cleansed from sin. And when, as living souls, we later receive our resurrected bodies on the last day and are then put down on this earth, this earth made pure, Christ promises that we will be raised up to a renovated life. I chose the word renovated to get across that there is some continuity because when you renovate, let's say you renovate your home, you don't start from scratch, right? Some homes need a lot of renovation. You, you have to strip it down to the studs. Maybe you have to knock out some walls. You might have to put in all new electrical and plumbing, probably all new windows and drywall, but in the end, it is your old house made new. You can still recognize it was your old house. There's the form of it, the shape of it. Well, says the Scripture, so it is with the resurrected life. We're not going to get a brand new human life with zero connection to the past, but it's going to be this life, your personal human life. But now, made new, renovated by the hands of God in that mysterious, beautiful, wonderful way. This life made whole. This life purified of all its shame and sorrow. Will I know you in heaven? Yes. And you will know me. We'll know each other. Only everything related to sin that messes up our relationships in this life, on this earth, all that stuff will be taken away so that our fellowship then will be spotless and perfect and wonderful. We will have our memory, but without the baggage that comes with it so often now. And the most important memory, the, the dominant memory, 
that we will always have in the next life will be Christ and what He has done for us on the cross. No one's ever going to forget that. Memory of our sin today, as we think about our own sins, it brings with it very often shame, sorrow. In the next life, we will remember our wrongs, but the memory of the blood of Christ shed for those wrongs will overpower those sins and chase away the shame. And the sense of and the reality of forgiveness will be greater than how we feel it is today. Our Savior, brothers and sisters, is powerful. Remember what Jesus said. You got to know the scriptures and you got to know the power of God. Right now, it's hard to imagine that the sense of shame we have won't overcome us at some future point if we still remember these things. But our Savior is powerful enough, is he not, to remove the shame without canceling the memory? When we live, and I have to think about this, on the new earth, in the presence of the triune God, right? Like full on, right now the Spirit is with us. We know that. Beautiful. But then we will see God face to face in all of His wonder and glory when we live in the glorious presence of the Lamb of God. We cannot help but see His perfect sacrifice has truly removed all guilt and shame in God's judgment of us. And so, we no longer hold that judgment of ourselves. The lingering sense of guilt that we all have in this life, it's going to be gone. Gone. And the work of Christ stands that much brighter. What about those who will not be in heaven? That question I get asked a fair bit. Will we remember those who are not with us in heaven? Well, the rich man in the parable remembered his unbelieving brothers. Right now, in, in this life, the very thought of people who close to us, not going to heaven, pains us deeply, and it should. It should. It pains the Lord deeply, right? Ezekiel 18, He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. How often doesn't the Lord God weep over His own people? Think of what Jeremiah writes. He's known as the weeping prophet. He weeps on God's behalf for the sins of His people. Think of the Lord Jesus approaching Jerusalem. Jerusalem, He says, if only you had known what would make for peace. And the Lord Jesus is weeping over His people. That's why we need to pray and lament and speak a word of warning to those who currently have their hearts, their hearts hardened toward God in the hope that God will yet grant a miracle. Now is the age, the time of weeping. Now is the time of prayer and hope. But when the final judgment comes, when at last the hearts of every human being are revealed, and it becomes clear that in their hearts they have no love for God, 
No love for the Lamb of God who gave His life for the sins of people? That in fact, they hate Christ in their hearts? When that is made plain on the day of judgment, will we then, who love God and love the Lamb, will we object to God's righteous judgment? Abraham in heaven gives no sign of grief over the man in hell who was a, an Israelite, one of his own sons. He says, child, son. Abraham was not filled with grief. He recognized it as the right judgment of the Lord. And so it shall be for us on that day where the love of God will be perfected in our hearts and then the judgments of God will also be recognized as good judgments. And here's one of those instances where we have to think of the power of God because at this moment, it's so hard to think that our feelings might change about someone that we're thinking about whom we are lamenting for right now praying about right now how our thoughts could then shift to accept that they will not be in heaven with us. And yet Christ promises that He has power to change also those feelings, and He has power to change the way we love so that our love becomes a love without limits. We've, all, we've been seeing that there's a measure of continuity from earth to heaven, but there's also discontinuity. Memory and relationships carry on, but sin does not carry on. Sorrow does not carry on. Brokenness does not carry on. And also we learn that the relationships we have now do not carry on in exactly the same way across the board. That comes out when the Lord says to the Sadducees in verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. We have to slow down over that and understand that carefully. Jesus is not saying that we will become like angels full stop. That we will become like angels in every respect. Some people even think that we humans will turn into angels, but very clearly our text shows that we remain humans, we remain who we are as males and females. What Christ is saying here is that we will become like the angels in one respect, namely, we will neither marry nor give, be given in marriage. And that can bother us sometimes. Perhaps, especially if we are happily married or have had a good marriage. Marriage was, we know that, created in, by God in the beginning as a holy institution, as a blessing. When two Christians become married and live their lives to the honor of the Lord, when a Christian husband is acting as he should, like Christ to his bride, when a Christian wife is acting as she should, like the church, toward her groom, then that Christian marriage is, is a wonderful relationship. It is the most intimate, it's the most personal, it's the most blessed love that Christians can know on this earth. 
And when you experience that, it can be hard to think that's not going to be around in the next life. That it's hard to understand why God would take away something that is so good here. Will we really have no husband? Will we really have no wife in the resurrection? Well, it might help to think of marriage and, and look at marriage from the perspective of God's big plan and overarching purpose. If we go back to creation, why did God institute marriage? You remember He had created one man and one woman. He had commanded them to fill the earth and subdue the earth. And it was God's choice to give them the gift of marriage to make that happen. Out of their marriage would come offspring, children. They would be fruitful and multiply. Marriage was the, the vehicle, you could say, for that. It was God's design to fill out the human race that, that way. It was also God's design, we know from Ephesians 5, to make human marriage a reflection of the marriage of Christ and His bride, the church. Even the intimate fellowship and, and union of a bride and groom mirrors the intimate fellowship and union of Jesus and His people through the working of His Spirit. The, the, the physical union mirrors the spiritual union of Christ and His bride. That's how God set things up in the beginning. Well, now if we fast forward to the resurrection, to the bringing in of God's new heaven and new earth, what then will the situation be? We no longer have one man alone and one woman alone. Rather, we have, as Revelation says, a countless multitude gathered around the throne of the Lamb. Before creation started, God had set a number of elect, right? That's Ephesians 1. There's a certain number of chosen people that He has chosen in Christ to be His own, to be the bride. And when that number has been gathered in through the course of history, then the end will come. At that time, the earth, when, when the resurrection occurs, the earth will be full of God's people, gathered from all the ages of the world, gathered into His church and into His kingdom, and they will all be together for the first time in one place and one space and time to be the completed church of God, the completed bride who will go on to live with Him forever. That's what's going to happen on the day of resurrection. Once that time comes and the new earth is there, there will be no more death, but there will also be no more births. There will be no more production of children. The end goal of the marriage institution will have been reached. We're not there yet, but it's coming. And with that multitude of people gathered around Christ, will we not have the marriage feast of the Lamb? Again, from Revelation. Will you and I and all the rest of God's people not be gathered around the table of the Lord at that spiritual banquet where the Lord Jesus will be with us in the flesh, in person. Also, in this respect, the purpose of our human marriages will be fulfilled, and thus marriage will no longer be required. The very thing that our human marriages point toward will, on the day of resurrection, be fully completed and thus no longer needed. We will share in that new reality the greatest form of communion, the greatest form of fellowship with God 
the bride, church, and Christ, a fellowship that surpasses anything we now experience in our marriages. It will surpass. For it cannot be a lesser love than we know now. It must be a greater love because everything about the next life will be superior to this life. The best marriage that we enjoy today will only be surpassed by the spiritual union we will then know between Christ and ourselves and between us, among us, human to human. For while marriage will disappear, the Bible is clear, 1 Corinthians 13, love will never disappear. Our human marriages today have a limitation. One man and one woman, and it's a good limitation. It's what's needed in this life. But in the resurrection, our love for one another, that will be a love without limit. That will be a time when our souls will be knit together in a, a holy friendship by the Spirit of Christ. The sexual union of, uh, that's happening within marriage right now, that will no longer be needed. That will be outdone by the, the spiritual union between hearts, our hearts horizontally and our hearts vertically with our Savior. What we have as a foretaste in the fellowship of the saints here in church, especially in the fellowship we enjoy around the Lord's table, that, that little foretaste will then be made full and complete and glorious in the marriage feast of the Lamb. So we're going, brothers and sisters, from, from something that, that's precious, human Christian human marriage, precious but marred, right? We all have sin in our human marriage with one other person to a sinless, inexpressible intimacy of the soul with all humans together with our God and Savior. Will that not be something far and away superior, far and away better than anything we may experience in this life? The resurrection is coming brothers and sisters. The future is exciting. We don't have all the answers, but we, we know some things. We have a wonderful inheritance for us. Will I know you in heaven? Absolutely. Will it be the same? No. It's going to be better, far better than anything we've ever imagined. Amen.